Now, Calvin Trillin is one of the wittiest writers in America. You may know this from reading his New Yorker pieces for years, the U.S. Journal, which has serious writing as well. And if you're fortunate enough to read The Nation, the oldest weekly journal in America, that's my plug, Mm. Uh, Calvin Trillin does a page called Uncivil Liberties, funny and abrasive and biting and whimsical, but he's also a serious writer. That is a serious journalist in that in covering murder cases, as he's done as part of his U.S. journal work with the New Yorker, cases of sudden violent death in different communities, he's uncovered a part of America that is not yet revealed by traditional journalists. And the book is called Killings, a collection of these revelations of what they are by Bud Calvin Trillin, Tickner and Fields, the publishers, and I think it's one of the most revelatory books around and about in years, a study of our country. There's a phrase Calvin Trillin uses, the way certain people die may tell you how they live and the community lives. My guest is Calvin Trillin. And so we begin. The contents of this book, Killings, are a compilation of various cases you've not investigated as a detective, but covered as a journalist in different parts of the country. Yes, I I started uh, in 1967 doing a story someplace every three weeks for The New Yorker. And gradually I found that once or twice a year I would end up at the scene of a murder, at least a sudden death. Now what led you to that? What what made you go to that particular? Well, it, as it, I didn't realize wow. what I was doing until I had done half a dozen of them, but I think I was looking for a way to write about people, about ordinary people, not so much about issues or about what public spokesmen said about this or that. And you you have a choice when you're trying to do that, either to write pieces about a typical such and such or or uh, something like that, and that's not the sort of thing I was interested in. I said, and then I realized after a while that sudden death, particularly murder, is in the first place an excuse to be there, to talk about an individual's life. And in some cases it's the person who was murdered, in some cases the person accused of doing the murder, and ab- about a community and about how people react to the to the death. And then it also turns out that Something like sudden death gives shape to people's lives. So it's, for a reporter, kind of an excuse to be there and also the structure of a story, a way of writing about people. You're also there at a certain moment in the life of that community. You said when the shades are suddenly drawn up, I would say pulled up suddenly, you know, and go up. That's true. If, If something like this happens, whether it's a murder or an accidental death or suicide, uh, the shades are drawn. You're right, just like yeah. that. And suddenly you see parts of people's lives that you otherwise wouldn't see. So we start 69. It's somewhere in 69. Jeremiah, Kentucky. Now we're talking about eastern Kentucky. Right, the mountains of, of eastern Kentucky, a gorgeous part of the country, at least I'm sure it was before people started tearing things this out of it. a place in which I happen to admire the people, certain ones who live there very much. In East, they're fighting strip miners. Strip miners fight right. them. There have been mine wars, Harlan County, Letcher County. Right. And that's where you came in Jeremiah, Kentucky. This was in Letcher County, Kentucky, yeah. when a, a film crew that was working on a film for the U.S. Pavilion at something called Hemisphere in San Antonio was taking some pictures of 
some people in a little in some little shacks along the road there when um, the man who owned the shacks came and started shouting to get off the land and and they started to leave and as they were leaving he shot Hugh O'Connor the producer of the movie quite a renowned documentary filmmaker and killed him um, and of course then there became a question of why he killed him and whether he had a right to kill him and whether he was as the people there would say um, us hillbillies don't like to be um, made fun of even though some of the ones who would say that are people who are actually you know, professional and educated and they would prefer yeah. to call themselves hillbillies so it was and in fact the trial had to be moved to uh, Harlan County because of so much sympathy for this fellow although nobody was particularly the fellow who shot the camera the, yes exactly uh, although he was a, known as a mean-tempered, eccentric old fellow before this happened. What comes out of your book, though, out of that incident, your coverage is the fact there's a sensitivity that's so deep about right. being looked down upon by city people. That's one aspect, you know. Yes, and he was, um, and it was assumed that when they went to Harlan County, which, as you know, used to be called Bloody Harlan yeah. because of the labor wars down there, um, and had it as its prosecuting attorney, a man then at that time, a man named Daniel Boone Smith, who was said to have uh, been a lawyer in more capital cases than any man in the history of Anglo-American jurisprudence. He, had, I don't know, seven, eight, nine hundred of them at that time, and uh, he said that it was assumed by every when everybody assumed that he wouldn't be very rigorous in his prosecution of this man, but he insisted that these people were well-behaved outsiders. They yeah. were strangers, but hadn't been there yeah. to make fun of people. Yeah. They'd been there to record things for a proper American. And what comes mm -hmm. out, though, is a certain feeling in that, not all, like this is also planned, you see. There are certain people who play upon that very theme, almost a stereotype theme. Well, exactly. Say, we the hillbillies are put down upon. They're the ones who use the mountain people. Yes, and m many people thought it was significant that the yeah. person who shot Hugh O'Connor was not the person who actually lived in the shack, whose picture was being taken, but the person who owned the shack. Um, for years, there have been people in, in that part of Kentucky who have done fairly well while everybody else has been. But what, at, what was the result of the trial? Well, the first trial was a hung jury. And then on the second trial, as it was about to begin, uh, the man who had shot O'Connor, uh, Eisen was his name, did a deal more or less yeah. uh, guilty for uh, for several years in prison um, and I, I happened to be sitting there when people in the who worked at the court started discussing it and and one woman said well us hillbillies don't like to be made fun of and and said I wouldn't have we, we just don't like it and and another woman a gentler woman said well, we're not all like that, mean like that. Yes. And the first woman said, I wouldn't have gone on that man's land to pick me a mess of greens. Yeah. And I said, they didn't know that. So, well, they know it now. Uh, you, you know what? Why your book is so good, it seems at this time of so much, <laughs> the appeal, it seems to me officially, is so much meanness rather than something else in our spirit that we have this insight into a community of basically good people. And so you go from there to Iowa. Iowa, where the tall corn grows. You got two marvelous cases. Let's start with the one at Center Junction, 1971. Jim Tex and the one-armed man. Yeah, these were, 
I guess Jim Barry was probably the most disreputable fellow in Center Junction, Iowa, and Tex Yarborough was, I guess, in the lower 10 in Maquoketa, Iowa. The one-armed man actually had a name, but I never heard anybody call him anything except the one-armed man. They, they were arguing at a bar. Jim and Tex had met over their interest in CB radio. And um, then they had a long couple of days in a bar, it seems to me. And the, the, uh, one of the people in the bar was this one-armed man. He was from Bald Knob, Arkansas. He was, he was a pipeline worker. There are a lot of pipeline workers yeah. that live in Bald Knob. a lot Knob. of construction work going on. That's right. Yeah. And, the, and uh, apparently the, the folks in Bald Knob have a subscription to some pipeline magazine or newsletter. And then when they see that there's jobs someplace, they just all get up and go. And then they go back to Bald Knob. And it, and for complicated reasons, they got into an argument about whether there was such a thing as a water dog, and uh, what one looked like if there was one. And eventually, what is a water dog? They were arguing. They were drunk. They had a few drinks. They were yeah. They had a few drinks. And a water was, dog is what in the <laughs> south somewhere. That's yeah, it was some kind of um, uh, fish-like animal uh, in a river. And um, Jim, of course, they they had it was in one of those bars that that is all. Uh, beer company art, e- except for some uh, tapestries of a stag at bay that the the woman who ran it said that some foreign-looking man came and sold them once. And um, I don't think because of the argument, but just because the things, the way things went, somehow, at the end, they were back at at uh, Jim Barry's house, and Tex walked up to the door, and Jim Barry shot him. We're talking about something, life in Middle America, really. It's Iowa, where the soil's pretty good. We'll come to that in a moment. And these uh, construction work, a couple other guys who had uh, in-and-out life, typically American macho guys who were at a bar, you know. We're talking about us kind of mindlessness, aren't we? Yeah, people who happened to have a gun and and didn't do much, and both, I think, uh, both Tex and Jim really were from out of state, Jim was from Tennessee, and Tex was from Texas, of course, and they both had gone up there because maybe there was a cheap house available near where their wives had grown up or something like that and didn't do much. By the way, as you're talking, another aspect comes in. This comes out in your book in, in its own subtle way, the transient quality of life here. These two guys who from elsewhere. We always think of somebody in Iowa as being there for generations. You go to a right. small town in South Dakota, and then suddenly you realize... Nobody knows who anybody is. That's true. There are a lot of people who um, I discussed in the introduction of this book, a, a, a piece I did once about a body that was found in a trunk in St. Petersburg of a woman. A lot of people called the police station saying they thought they knew who was, who was the body in the trunk. And it was always somebody like, well daughter who had a couple of kids and left him up north and worked as a cocktail waitress. I mean, there's a whole group of people that just kind of move around from yeah. place to place. That's true. And so much of America. We're thinking of Iowa now, this case you're talking about of uh, Tex, Jim, and the one-armed guy. And I always think of the hotel I was raised in as a kid, a random fight for no reason when Life's kind of rough, and a few drinks are there. During the Depression, this was very frequently the right. case. You remember La Strada? Right. At the very end, he gets in a fight, the strong man. She dies, the right. clown girl. She dies, and this guy's in a bar, and he's drunk, and they kick him out, and he's thrown out in the street. You know one day, you know one day, his head is going to hit that curb, and he's going to 
break his head. Right. And that's what this is. Yeah, a lot of people, I, I think Tex said something like, you shot me, you rat, seemed kind of yeah. surprised, and, and with good reason. Why in the world would he shoot him? In the meantime, there's Calvin Trillin cover. What led you to these cases? How do you hear of these cases? You work for a New Yorker now. Sometimes people would send me, I know somebody, I remember that somebody sent me a clipping about the, um, the case in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Occasionally I'd read something in an out-of-town paper. People might tell me about it. Just odd ways, and sometimes a very tiny yeah. clipping, an inch or inch and a half. So Southern inch. California, around Glendale. There's a guy named Sergei... Kordikov. Kordikov, who's right. a defector. What right. Now, he's involved with, with a religious group. He's involved with a group that raises a lot of money to help Christians being oppressed behind the Iron Curtain. And it turns out I hadn't realized it before I went out there. That's a kind of a specialty of Glendale partly because the first group had a lot of spin-offs where people would accuse them of something and go form their own group. So they have three or four rival groups um, helping oppressed Christians. Some, sometimes the, the same oppressed Christians. I mean, they tend to use yeah. the same examples of people. And so they compete with each other. That's right. They all have the same kind of thing. stories of being yeah. beaten for his faith, and those, those are the kind of uh, tortured for Christ. Those are the sort of stories By the way, have. before we come back to, to Sergei's case, you and I met the same man who hung around Glenda. We met him in, in Arkansas, of course, the great colorful figure of the 30s, Gerald L. K. Smith. That's right. In Arkansas. You went to... Uh, I went to do a story when... Um, in Eureka Springs. In Eureka Springs when, uh, when Smith had supposedly retired there with his wife and then... Um, Elna Smith. That's right. Mother, he always called her. Yeah. And, um, and then it said, wouldn't it be nice to have a, uh, an Easter service and pretty soon it wouldn't it be nice to have a Christ of the Ozarks statue and then wouldn't it be nice to have a passion play? And he kind of told the people in the town, which was in between uh, tourist booms, that uh, Passion Play would draw a lot of folks to the town. And so they, they were pretty much able to separate that from what they always referred to as his uh, controversial work in, in you California. You wear that about a year after you. He spoke when I went to see him down in Eureka Springs. He says, there was this couple, did something for Esquire, referring to... Calvin Trill and his wife, Alice, who were down there, he says, well, they were very charming, didn't treat me right. And there I was seeing them. And we were at the foot of the Christ of the Ozarks. That is a blesses about four states simultaneously. Right. It's huge. Or pure. And out of it comes, stereophonically, the voices of Tennessee Ernie Ford and Kate Smith <laughs> singing hymns. But the point is, you cover these aspects. You did you do for the New Yorker. And I'm mean, using the Gerald L. K. Smith case as an example of what you do because we're, we're talking about his, his home, his anchorage is Glendale, California. Right. And Glendale, I take it as a sort of a, a, a mecca. It's a home. It's the Athens of right. fundamentalists who work electronically. I suppose, yeah, I suppose that's true. And they're, they're, they, uh, they must get a lot of checks through that post office yeah. in Glendale. Um, the, he, he was, uh, of course, the people would call, would, would say that he was still putting out, what is it, the cross and the flag or something this in Glendale, Gerald L.K. Smith. Smith, which was, of course, um, had been for years this, this uh, vehemently anti-Semitic publication. And the, 
people w- were able to distinguish that from the passion play, which which by coincidence often mm-hmm. uh, also had anti-Semitic <laughs> overtones, but they never uh, they never talked much about that. I'm thinking about the the case you covered in in the book Killings that Tickner Fields put out. This young guy, Sergei Kurdakov. Oh yeah, he was a defector. He was, he had supposedly um, jumped off a Russian trawler and, and he swam to Canada, and then um, it, it was said had a kind of a, a conversion in in Canada and somehow ended up in Glendale with this group. And he was a tremendous find for them because uh, they said that what had really gotten him in Canada is he had he had seen the same Bible that he used to take from these poor Christians when he'd raid their services, three or four hundred Christian raids in some part of Siberia. This is a wonderful buildup. And then he was found one night, somebody called the police in, uh, in, a, in motel. a town, in a motel near San Bernardino in a kind of a little ski area or resort area there. And they went out and they found a kind of scared 17-year-old girl, the daughter of the family, the church family that had asked him to stay at their house, uh, and Sergei Kordikov, who apparently shot himself while either showing off or cleaning the gun. Um, and and the, um, it was somewhat embarrassing to these Christians, although they immediately said that Sergei had said if he was ever found, don't believe suicide, because the Russian secret police and they did it. were after He's him. He's this, this good church-going girl, you know. Right. And so that was the problem, I suppose, at this motel. But the father of the girl, he's a gun. The father of the girl is a, is a pretty good, he owns seven guns. He owns seven guns. And, I, and you think, well, you know, it's a risk of defecting to America. I mean, where else would you, would you, the girl you met on a church picnic's father have seven guns? And, of course, <laughs> he lent one to Sergei in case the Russians came after him. And Sergei yeah. ended up like most people. You think that's the case? Coming back to your approach, Calvin Trillin. You cover the case. By the way, the writing is marvelous. We shouldn't, if we only have time, we could read some of this, as you did in New York recently, very beautifully. It's it's made for reading out loud. It's drama. It's it's done simply without editorial comment, and suddenly revealed as the psyche of that community and part of our country. And here too, you have the professional proselytizers embarrassed by this kid, and yet it's accepted pretty well. It had to be somebody outside who did it. Oh, sure. Uh, then, of course, they started advertising his uh, his autobiography as a, uh, yeah, but on some, tape as a special <laughs> as a special. But there's offer. something else I wish you'd read. It's also a picture of an emigre, a, a, a visitor to America, a stranger, an alien, who finds America and the dream. And in a sense, that's part of it, too. It's so sudden. Well, there, there had been something about the American way of life. And as much of the testimony, of course, indicated that Kordikoff had already grown into the American way of life at the time of his death. A weekend at Disneyland and at a motel. A 17-year-old girl more emphatic about her reputation than about murder. Strawberry wine. A pair of custom-fitted ski boots. A Thunderbird in the parking lot. Where else but in America, after all, could Kordikoff find to his ultimate misfortune that the father of a girl he met at a church camp owned seven weapons. The American dream, right. realized to some extent. Calvin Trillin's my guest, and we're talking about his book, Killings, which is different from some of the other books, his very funny books on diet and food and his adventures. 
and his very excellent column in The Nation, Uncivil Liberties. This is different. This is straight reportage, but in the best sense. And suddenly we see a certain aspect of our lives through these random and deliberate killings, deaths. Killings is the book, and Tickner feels the publishers, and there are about a half a dozen more cases we have to talk about. This is done chronologically, sort of. Right, because I then, thought the times were, were important as well as the place. And, uh, for instance, the story in Pennsylvania, 1970, was very much of a 1970 story, because yeah. that's the way people felt. So, but we've got to go to Miami and the death of a criminal lawyer named Jean yes. Saint-Jean. Yeah, they just said Saint-Jean. Saint-Jean. He was a very successful criminal lawyer in um, Miami, and in, in his um, 50s, I guess, gotten successful enough so that he had really turned to some divorce work. He lived in a place called the Jockey Club in Miami, and I think I said that a divorce lawyer there could be as assured of his future as a dentist in Hershey, Pennsylvania. It was the sort of place where people were shedding yeah. wives and husbands for pretty and the quickly. Average age of, uh, the average age of a member of the jockey club. Oh, they said the average age of one of the residents was 40, and that, that's a 60-year-old guy and a 20-year-old broad. And it was, uh, it was the sort of place where the, the people were so, uh, the bartender was so accustomed to hearing people order by brand names uh, tankery martini or a J and B on the rocks. And I asked for a scotch and water, and he just looked at me puzzled <laughs> as if I had asked for a jug of Busthead or something. You know, I don't you know what? I can tell you. So once I was at a club, I said scotch and water. What kind? I said J and B. And he says, I said soda. He says, What kind? <laughs> kind for of the soda? soda. Yeah. Well, that's, so there, that's the we, ultimate we're brand also name. We're talking about sudden money. Right. Sudden wealth and sudden respectability, particularly in a place Miami, which has a which has a, a kind of a place of its own in America. It's not the only place like this, but nobody's terribly respectable in Miami. And and if, if somebody has had money for some time, it may mean that that uh, they did their land flipping in the '30s instead of the '50s. And it it's still a hard place to cash a check. It's it's a it's a place mm -hmm. where even in the in the uh, most um, exclusive, and in fact, at that point, restricted uh, golf club where Harvey St. Jean belonged. Uh, occasionally, you'd read in the paper about one of the board's directors um, being accused of hanging out with bookmakers or the IRS after somebody who fleeced some people out of hundreds of thousands of dollars in golf and didn't declare it, that sort of thing. Well, what you've done here is you cover high life, a certain high life of Miami a certain high-life city, too, to some extent. But it's not a question of who killed Harvey St. Jean. That's your story. Mm. It's what surrounded the killing of Harvey St. Jean. That's right, because in a way, almost anybody could have killed him. Um, he had defended all sorts of, of criminals. And the, I said he was at the point of, of defending criminals who had nicknames like, like halfbacks or middleweights. You know, he had wonderful people like the Crying Ajmes, I think their names were, who were accused of uh, of uh, defrauding somebody out of a um, out of a lot of money for I think it was a nunnery owned by a by a German named Finkelstein or something wonderful schemes and and he had many ex-wives himself 
uh, St. Jean, I guess, six or seven. You know, I hope someone, before we hours over, to read some pieces from the book, just the way you write it, too, and cover it. So we'll go back to Tennessee, Cleveland, Tennessee. In 1977, we skipped a couple of New England cases. Mm. We'll come to New England later. And this is the death of a baby. Militia Morgana Gibson. Yeah, this girl, is um, a little girl, I guess three or four years old, who had been beaten and was uh, treated. And the doctor who treated her at the hospital was a doctor named uh, Dr. Appling, who was really kind of carrying on a crusade about abused children in this town, Cleveland, Tennessee, which is a town that had some manufacturing. A lot of people had come in from the hills to work there. And very, very respectable town, uh, uh, a, a Bible town, and totally dry, and also conscious of its reputation. And Dr. Appling would say things like that the people who come in here get frustrated and they turn on their children. And I think although the people in Cleveland obviously wanted to protect children, they really at one point would just wish he'd shut up. He was, he was kind of a busybody in a way. To them, at least. And I mean, that's what I they see thought. all these children in the emergency room beat all to hell. I see them back in the emergency room beat all to hell. People seem like this child here is mine. He's my property. I can maim him. I can kill him. None of your business. And he's and he's a pain to most of these people. Are. He and a right. young guy of another right. agency. Tried uh, yeah, particularly because um, uh, a pain to the, to the local... Um, uh, what what amounts to welfare? I mean, the the social services group of the county, which was had it in the same uh, um, goals as most of these groups around the country, which is to get families reunited. And it's a it's a complicated business. Often, as you as you know, abused children want to go home, um, and and uh, in this case, it was turned out not to be safe to but send we're talking this little to, girl but home. But we're talking to uh, about Ronnie Maddox, who's and Wanda lives with, married, mm-hmm. and she's that kid. And Ronnie's life is kind of a wretched, miserable one. Yeah, Ronnie um, may have worked a little in a furniture plant here and there and um, was hoping to get some money from a back injury from falling down some steps. And, um, and so uh, he saw at his little stepdaughter. He really ended up, in a way, kind of torturing her to death. As you may know, a lot of times uh, children in a family all get along all right with the parents except one uh, who's perceived as different in some way uh, or is merely the one picked on. Um, and the, there had been a great fear about sending her back, and the foster parents, who happened to be really the other side of the coin yeah. in Cleveland, in Tennessee, the uh, people who would prob- the mother of the foster parents actually knew Wanda's sister or brother, but they seemed almost a different race of people. They, they, they were solid, church-going people, and I bet their house had been cleaned two or three times a day since it started, and they loved kids. And but Ronnie, you see, so the child dies, and it's mm. known Ronnie, in a sense, killed her mm. by having to walk back and forth and give another sauce to drink right. and eat. And so the child dies, and so now the town that were sore at Dr. Appling. All of right. a sudden, a righteous, uh, particularly the singer, the country singer, Hank oh, yeah. Snow. And you gotta read Hank Snow. A word about Hank Snow. We know Hank Snow is a very popular country right. singer. 
my um, community, and perhaps explain the background well, of that. Every everybody um, um, had started to turn. They fired the welfare worker. Although then the welfare workers went on strike, saying, I thought rather persuasively that she had done exactly what she was supposed to do, and what uh, according to her the policy. It says the commissioner announced a moratorium on returning abused children to their families and speculated on the possibility of easing the procedures available for terminating parental rights. And this is the real the outrage. Members of a Teamster local picketed the governor's mansion urging that Ronnie and Wanda Maddox be given the death penalty if found guilty. Hank Snow, the country music singer, wrote the governor, I've heard countless people say if these radicals were burned in the electric chair or even lynched in the Ronnie city square. Ronnie and radicals. Yes, Ronnie's yeah. a radical. It would start some of these lowdowns to giving some serious thought before committing these gruesome crimes. There was some talk about sterilization as a way to prevent child abusers from producing more children to abuse. Those in the child protection field who believe that reform should concentrate on prevention of child abuse rather than on punishment of abusers found themselves grateful that the state legislature will not be in session until next spring. Yeah, of course, but marvelous and, and horrendous about the piece is that the, the hypocrisy, you know, the righteousness. Right. In the first place, the mind your own damn business. Parents do own the child. This is the feeling of the community. And that's why Dr. Appling was looked down upon. When mm. this death occurred, the switch onto righteous rage at the, this delinquent couple. Right, and at the end, of course, they named the um, child care facility the Militia Morgana Gibson child care facility. It's like a short story, uh, like an ironic, at, at the end, at, at which Hank Snow performed. Of course. Yeah. Right. Uh, a benefit. A, yeah. It's a John Cheever short story, <laughs> or a, Fla a Flannery O'Connor right, short say. story by Calvin Trillin, my guest. We just wander. As you, now, what did you, you heard about the case, you hear about something. Oh, you're right. in that area at the time? No, I hear about something usually, sometimes from somebody, sometimes the other Tennessee case about the high school girl who came home late and her father started chasing the car. I uh, read about an, probably an inch and a half wire service story in a paper, and I just thought it just raised so many questions in my mind. And it's very because the case is interesting to you. Yeah, interesting. it's interesting, and I would wonder, well, how did, why did she do this? Why did the father do this? How do they feel about it? How do other people feel about it? And, and it, it interests me, uh, even though it isn't the sort of story that would interest, say, a newspaper, uh, because the people in that particular case weren't terribly important. They didn't show any trend of what was happening around the country. It didn't affect a lot of people. Uh, but to me, that yeah, that was very interesting. We can't leave out New England. You know, after all, we've done the mountain country, we've done the Midwest, Iowa, New England, Manchester, New Hampshire. This is 1978, and there's a macho guy named Hank... Piasny, Pias they call it. Piasnicky. Yeah. Oh, Hank. What about Hank? Uh, he runs a sporting goods store. He runs a sporting goods store. He worked his way up from the mills, like a lot of people in New Hampshire, uh, uh, in that part of New Hampshire. Manchester was uh, kind of the classic mill town. Amoskeg mills that were there. And uh, his wife did the same, both one of them's from a poor Polish family, the other from a poor French-Canadian family. And um, he became uh, pretty successful in the sporting goods 
business, knew a lot of politicians, was apparently a great hunter. Man with a, with a wild temper. Um, very stormy marriage, a couple of kids. The boy left very early, got married at very young, I, su- I suspect, to get out of the house. And occasionally the police were called to calm down Hank. Eventually they got a divorce, and then the wife came back from a bar one evening with a couple she knew and a m- local architect who happened to stop in the bar when he went to park his car. The couple left, and the architect was left, and then apparently, as for the way the police were able to piece it together, Hank Piasney emerged from the basement and killed both of them, stabbed one of them 13 times, I think, and the other one 11, and was... Um, sent to the uh, state hospital and um, had a daughter who would seem to be kind of a model student and this went to Susan. medical school, Susan passed mm-hmm. me. And um, then she started having some minor scrapes with um, pills and and uh, shoplifting or some bad checks, that sort of thing. And everybody thought this really had, had kind of ruined her too. Eventually, um, Hank got out in just a couple of years to everybody's horror, settled down, and then one weekend she called the uh, police and said that she was afraid something might happen to him because he had been particularly mad at her. Then they went and they found Hank uh, with his head blown off with a shotgun and said he finally had had enough remorse and guilt build up that, she had, that he had shot himself. And uh, his daughter insisted that it was murder that there was another hole in the body somewhere, bullet hole. And um, of course, she was such a pain in the neck, the police just didn't pay any attention to her and finally got the body exhumed and it turned out that there, were, there was another hole and it was murder. Um, but there's a, there's a O'Henry twist to this. Well, the murder, of course, was her. So she, what made her? We talk she, about crazy aspects of life. She what had, made her insist it was murder to implicate herself? I don't know that. Of course, she was she was in turn sent to the yeah. to the same state hospital, and um, the I talked to the prosecuting attorney who had brought the case, and he said that um, it had to be that he hated to ask that sort of he hated to go along with a not guilty for reason of insanity um, plea, but in fact she had to be insane. She had committed a perfect crime. The man was actually buried, and 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 it, it it wasn't just that one suggestion that did it. She had to hound the police and scream and yell, and finally had her brother agree to sign the papers and called up their own the uh, doctor. Yeah. Well, toward the end, you know, yeah, because this deals with ambivalence. Toward the end, this girl Susan, who killed her father, and is caught trapped because of herself. Well, both parents are working about arguments. She remembers arguments and the violence in the house. I've talked of all the bad things, she says at the door as the visitor for the attendant to bring the key because she's now in the booby hatch. Mm. But there was love, too. That's true. And, you know, I think she was right. I think there really yeah. was love, too. And and the when the, when the son talked about his father coming up and showing his grandchildren how to hunt deer and everything. He, I bet there were times when that was a lovely man. We're talking about we're talking about the United States of America now, aren't we? Right. Well, yeah. 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 They had a few guns, too, in that family. <laughs> guns and love. And he, but also, he was a macho guy. 
And way back in right. the case of our friends in Iowa, the macho guys, Jim uh, Center oh. Junction, Jim Tex, one-armed man, there again, the macho feeling. Right. I think that had a lot to do with Hank Piasny, that, that sort of thing. And so we come to an athlete, and you read this in New York recently. You and I together had a reading. It was very moving. In Knoxville, Tennessee, in 79, Leo Cooper and his little daughter, Fanny. Fawny, they called Fawny. it for some reason. Leo Cooper. Uh, he was a former basketball player, a renowned basketball player in that part of Tennessee, and uh, had become a high school, junior high school principal. Married the homecoming queen. Lived, had a son and two daughters, and in a way seemed kind of an ideal family. But the but one daughter was just obviously troubled. Um, although very intelligent, and um, had fallen in with really a bad crowd, what, what her mother called the, the Union County crowd. The Union County was the next county to this kind of half-suburban, half-country part of Tennessee just outside of By Knoxville. By the way, as you're writing this, uh, the decades you're covering, these two decades, is a crazy thing happening between city and country, line of demarcation, is no, that's absolutely true. That's particularly true in that in that story, um, where the suburbs of of Knoxville had um, spilled out over the ridge, as they say in Knoxville, and uh, into these little towns that that um, that were right on the edge of of kind of an Appalachian area in a way, Union County, and uh, so the school has a kind of a mix of these kids. You have a crazy, this is happening, I know, and you, you're aware of this very much so. There's a no man's land, a twilight zone. There's Appalachia, there the Cumberlands, there are hills and hollows, and there's McDonald's and neon signs and franchises right. and a holiday in all of a sudden. And this is all, so you can no longer tell. Yeah, that's certainly uh, true in this story where, yeah. where you were in a kind of an area that was culturally mixed because of that, whether, whether it was a suburb Well, here's this guy, Leo Cooper, all-American, high school basketball, great. He, he got these kids, but there's one strange little girl he's got. Yeah, and she's kind of running around with a crowd that they don't approve of. And one night, um, she was at the library, was supposed to have the car home at 9, I think, and she didn't come home. And finally at 11, she came home. It was a week after she'd had some particular problems. And um, parked the family car at the end of this long driveway they had and then got into another car and drove off. And Leo Cooper jumped in another family car and chased them. And he chased them down these country roads and there, there's where he got back into these back roads where he was really, uh, he, could have been miles, really hundreds of miles from a place like Knoxville by the time he got back there. Didn't know the roads as well as the young man who was driving, who was driving one of these cars where he could tell where he turned because the muffler was dragging, you could see the sparks. And um, thought he lost them and then went up over a hill and he saw the car ahead of him in the air. And it turned over a couple of times and he went and he pulled his uh, daughter's body out of the car. Well, I had read about, oh, a, probably a two-paragraph story about this, a wire service story, and that's what really 
and I thought, you know, what was she doing in there, and why was he chasing, and all of these questions came <laughs> to my mind, and that's why I went down there. So Leo's chase, in a way, killed his daughter. Hmm. Well, I guess it did. I, I, um, I mean, somebody there said, well, they they brought the 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 boy up on on a manslaughter charge, and they originally had the the prosecuting attorney wanted to indict. Cooper himself for, I think, reckless driving, but the judge said something like, you know, any daddy worth his salt would have done. It's crazy, isn't it? Here. We have a crazy thing here involving law, you know, uh, uh, moral responsibility, exactly. the feelings of a father, and he said a kid who's scared stiff because this guy's going to kill him, he thinks. Exactly, and, I, and I'm not even sure. Um, I, they stopped at one point, and he says that she had an odd look on her face, and she and he knew that he had to get her out of the car. And it's hard to say what any father would have done. I mean, it's hard hard to say. Well, he made a mistake, or maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't. Um, he. It's hard to say what what All his we motives know is that were. Funny. She was bright, wasn't she? Yeah, she was very bright. She wrote poetry, and she was and and she was an interesting little girl. Funny thing is, I'm a girl just like her who's now a top social worker in town. Tough, but this kid, Fawny's poem, why don't you read? She had a poem she wrote, didn't she? Yeah, Fawny. I'll, um, I think I'm gonna die, and I really don't know why, but I look in my eye when I tell you goodbye. I think I'm gonna die. Because um, there really is a question about what she was doing in the car and whether or not she really did tell the fellow get going, my father has a gun, which he claimed. And if so, why? See, we, we have, I suppose, what you've done, to me, what Calvin Trillin does in his reportage, which is also literature, is that you cover the cases barely, that is barely written, but in the bareness is its eloquence. We get a picture of a country, of a community and of a country, a certain kind of girl living at a certain time, drug here and there, a righteous father, a good-natured guy, an athlete right. who doesn't, Decent man. doesn't know what's going on, and there's death. A lot of people in, in this book um, are decent people who behave decently, and somehow somebody gets killed while that happens. You know, we haven't talked about two more cases that cover. Uh, you've covered a number of them Calvin Trillin has in the book Killings. Iowa again, Fairfield. This is a question of the boat people, or in fact, Jean Colomano did an opera based on this, you know, of a South Asian family barging in a middle American family. And so in Iowa, this town, Fairfield, was yeah. taking some of the Laotian people. Iowa, as you, as you may know, was particularly active in taking refugees at that time. I mean, they really, uh, as someone said, they, were, they had a better foreign policy than, than, than Washington did. And um, one of the guys said that, yeah. And there was a little town in, in, uh, in southeast Iowa, Fairfield, that had four or five refugee families. And then another church brought um, some Hmong tribesmen over who were from highland uh, Laos as opposed to the lowland Laos who were there before. And um, they, of course, knew no English. and. And um, the father spoke some Lao, so they, oh, they they were able to communicate with these other people. And the Hmong tribesmen had been traditionally kind of discriminated against in, in Laos, thought of as the rubes and the country folk, and um, thought of as primitive and crude. 
And um, at some point, this family attempted to commit mass suicide, uh, this, this family of Hmong tribesmen. And the piece really isn't so much about them, um, but about what happened in the town when this happened, uh, particularly because one story that came out was the possibility um, the father who survived this attempt gave a very disjointed story of, with 60 reasons of why it happened. None of them very persuasive. And one possibility was that they had been threatened by these other people, these other refugees, which of course in a way made perfect sense to the church that was sponsoring them because why else would people who had been treated so well do this and made made a, um, a terrible impression on the people who were sponsoring the other refugees saying our refugees couldn't do anything like that. And so these two churches, these two young they looked down upon the rest of the community. They're yeah. regarded by the rest of the community as the monk people are by the Laotians. In a way there was a kind yeah. of a parallel problem yeah. there which I think probably was cleared up or at least papered over in that Iowa town more than it has been in Laos. Yeah, but you end that, you know, it's, of course it's a people lost in a whole new alien society, but you end saying, must there be a reason? Yeah, one, yeah. one lady said it, it seemed to me a very wise thing, so we, maybe we're just looking for reasons yeah. for something that there wasn't any reason What's for. The it turns out that, that the Hmong tribesmen have died in even more mysterious ways than that, um, at night, apparently through nightmares. You know, there are two more, one in Savannah and one in Grundy County, Iowa. Savannah is, it's almost a Tennessee Williams-type story. Uh, George, George Mercer, Mercer IV right. with time on his hands. Time on his hands and one of those young men who you see a lot of now, who um, maybe even more a few years ago when that story was written, who done a semester here and a semester there, never quite decided what he was going to do, came from a well-off family, although a family that had sold their business to a larger corporation and no longer actually ran the business, and um, again was in kind of an odd crowd and, um, and was kidnapped. And, and the, the story is partly about that and partly about the weekly paper um, that uh, printed um, the story of the kidnapping against the wishes of the of the family, and uh, some of the tensions in, in the way people in that part of Savannah are, are accustomed to taking care of things, yeah, sorting out difficulties. It's a tough family, and the editor of the paper that was almost destroyed by the family right. because the paper printed the news, the editor says the real improper thing was not that we endangered the boy's life, their son's life, but that an upstanding, powerful, rich member of the community asked us to do something, and we ignored his request. Right. We're talking about Savannah, too, the very town itself, and an elite, almost comical in a way, uh, a, a pre, an antebellum kind of feeling yes, almost. because I say that people in Georgia, people say in Atlanta, if they want to put on airs, say that their families were from Savannah. Yeah. I mean, that's the old part of And when the funniest, because this again is Bud Trillin covering things, the mother of the boy who died. The other boy accused of the killing was also a member of that circle, in a way. I would like to say that George, her son, who was, killed, was not a friend of this man. That's right. <laughs> Last thing, I mean, we've got to keep the, because to me, there's right out of Ibsen, and it's Grundy County, and a guy named Lawrence Hartman, a hard-working Lutheran, I take it, farmer, 
and its rich soil, and his wife Esther is an old German family, mm-hmm. and something happens to him. Yeah, he has, he is known as, as one of the best farmers in Grundy County, northern Grundy County, and um, where nearly everybody is a, is a fine farmer. I mean, it's the real heart of family farming in America. Uh, Grundy County is said to have the richest soil in Iowa. And these are people who are almost all on the same farm that their ancestors came to in the 19th century from um, the same part of Germany. Strict, hardworking people who don't wash their cars on Sabbath, at least near the road where one of their neighbors could see them. And um, he was a very good farmer. Meanwhile, the, the, the land prices were going up in that part of Iowa because I think partly people just suddenly realize this, this sort of land is, is limited. There isn't any more of it anywhere. Nobody's making any more. God's not going to make another county like this. And um, he became, at least on paper, a very rich man. And then when he was in his early 50s, I suppose, he had two sons who he farmed with, and, and um, he seemed to just go off the track started hanging around with someone he had met in a bar in, um, in Cedar Rapids. And, um, and his sons were tried to get him back. And, and She was a hotshot, a good-natured cocktail yes, waitress. Yes, she had been a cocktail waitress. And, and, good-natured uh, and very yeah, effusive. Brassy kind of um, type brassy. And, um, and nothing at all like, like uh, the former um, Esther uh, Meester, who's, who was his wife, who was a very strong member of this family, still baked pies from scratch and, and uh, helped keep the books and help run the farm. And um, people had all kinds of different theories about what had, what had happened. Uh, some people thought it was cattle buying. I mean, you, you don't think of it much if you live in a city, but the yeah. difference between ca- buying cattle and, and running a soybean operation is, is immense. I mean, a, a, a bean farmer or a corn farmer is is tied to his family. Comes home for lunch every day or dinner, as he would say. But he became and a cattle buyer. Cattle. If you buy cattle, that, that means uh, another. And you know, at one point in his life, Lawrence Hartman was able to buy cattle by calling a man he trusted in Sioux City and having him sent or go. So to there he is in Sioux City, a Cedar Rapids, and a few cocktail bars, and he meets uh, uh, Florence Catherine right. Sunderman. That's right. And. Um, and and the sons, of course, had a, were outraged at this, the way their mother was being cheated on, and, and also, even more so in some ways, they were they were terribly worried about him because he was a good farmer and he was letting down his end. Uh, they have, farm families that work together usually have very specific arrangements uh, in return for providing the feed. You get so the labor, something or happens. something like he that. He goes back home. He went. He goes back home, and it's, everything seemed to be to Because he likes the up. best two worlds. He likes his yeah. wife's cooking. He likes he, uh, yeah. son and father raising. Loves her pies. I was saying. Oh, yeah. when, and when everything seems cleared up, suddenly he calls the ambulance, and um, that something's happened, and they go out there, and his wife uh, is dead, um, bruised, um, battered. Um, and he said she apparently fell down the stairs. He had come home and found her in the basement falling down the stairs, and the boys, of course, had to be kept in another room at that point when they went over there because they, they the sheriff the was afraid the boys would kill the father. Yeah. Of course, it, 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 was a, it was a strong family 
in a lot of ways. Uh, it was so strong that the one thing they couldn't understand, despite all of his behavior, twice in a row he missed Christmas yeah. with the family, and it seemed to bother them almost more than anything. So at the very end, when he, I guess he's sent up, is that it? Yes. Uh, as the story ends, he's been convicted and is awaiting. Um, um, and the boy takes uh, care of the fine boat. Somebody says, what did it? Inflation. That's right. One of the theories, it wasn't cattle buying at all. It was inflation that said all of a sudden he was a rich man and he wasn't used to it. Now, to me, that's the way to end our conversation. <laughs> inflation. <laughs> and suddenly you realize we're talking about a crazy moment. There always been crazy moments in the history of all countries, but now a mm. country you cover the last two decades, pretty much, mm. uh, of these sudden deaths, these violent sudden deaths, murders, suicides. And there's a picture, is there not? What do you find out at the very end? You, Bud Trillin, come back home. and What's your feeling? Well, I, um, I, think, I think I got the feeling that, that on the whole, a lot of these people were leading regular lives. And a lot of these people were, nobody in this book, or practically nobody in this book, is what we think of as, as a criminal, or was a criminal before these cases. Um, it, it isn't a book about some, about some maniac who went out and killed 85 people or anything like that. In a way, I, I suppose that what impressed me is how, is how ordinary uh, everybody was, how uh, at whatever level of society, whatever background, how they were just leading their regular lives when, when something suddenly happened, often almost as an afterthought or, or accidentally. And, um, and of course, for me coming in, it, that, that gave their lives some sort of shape and gave me some excuse to be there. But one of the things I couldn't get over is that it, it, um, it all seemed so, so accidental. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, and the phrase you use, I suppose, that pretty much tells what the book is about. How people die suddenly tells how that community lives. Yeah, and it, it is a book more about how Americans live than, than about how some of them die. Yeah, and the shade suddenly is drawn right. up, and right. we see it. And Calvin Trellin's my guest, and he's the journalist, and... The Revelator, <laughs> as used to be an old gospel, black gospel, and John the Revelator, Calvin the Revelator, <laughs> Killings is the book, and Ticknerfield's the publishers, and it's quite beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Seth.